several times. <laughs> I think, yeah, the room's slightly in a different setup, so now I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. No idea what's happening. Um, Dan, our video ranking Warhammer models went up today. All right. How exciting. I haven't watched it yet. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> People are just going to be like, huh? Well, <laughs> You know what are you gonna do? We yeah. need to do something different. We need well, to keep people engaged. We're just dipping we just our need to have a little bit of fun occasionally. We need to have, we fun, need to occasionally. have fun occasionally. After please that, forgive oh us. <laughs> please forgive us our our fun having, yeah, merry exactly. making, yeah, um, yeah, very frivolous. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back into the mines soon enough. I mean, indeed, I think today we're gonna be getting back into the mines. But before we get to that. Um, how are you? How are things doing? Checking in. Um, seems like an okay day. It was the first day that it rained it here rained. in like 40 years. It was yeah, very nice. Yeah. We had a millimeter of rain or yeah. something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, cool. It's going to soak the ground and I won't have to like water the allotment. And then like 15 minutes later, I looked outside and it was all dry. <laughs> I was just like, okay, <laughs> whatever. Yes, I was present promised torrential downpours, thunderstorms, mm. risk of flooding, yeah, um, I'm sure that's happened that. somewhere, but it hasn't happened where I am standing. Yeah. So clearly it's not <laughs> happening anyway. Yeah, I uh, I feel like this is what people are talking about when they say, you know, we're at risk of just the climate world, like climate systems falling into just complete chaos. That's kind of today. It was just like, you know, it's been like extremely hot the last week, two weeks. And then now it's just like torrential rain. Then it goes back to being hot. It's just <laughs> like, okay, all right, awesome, great. I thought you were going to say you're relieved because, like, it still rains. So clearly yeah, there I, isn't yeah. a crisis. Well, I am. Yeah, yeah. Clearly there is no global warming because of that. Um, I don't know. Should we just get into it, Dan? Yeah, why not? I don't know whether I have any check-ins. I'm, <laughs> I'm uh, yeah. yeah. I've got too many things to do. There, yes. Dan is a very busy man today. So we need to get podcasting and get done. Um Dan, today we're reading, today, actually, I'm very excited about this. I'm also a little bit like, wow, I'm radically underprepared for this. But um, I'm very excited because you suggested this book a little while ago that we start to read it. And I think this is probably going to be like a multi-part series, maybe, we wind up doing. Uh, yeah, today <laughs> Well, I, either that or it's a classic one where we read the start of a book and then never come back to it. Yeah, book gen. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm very excited about this because we're kind of getting back into some Marxist ecology stuff. Um as we usually like to talk about, uh, climate catastrophe, doom and gloom, it's all around us. Climate catastrophe is happening, folks. Um, so we're getting back into kind of understanding how our current social relations relate to the climate crisis. Um, we're getting into kind of some vaguely philosophical stuff today, but we are, yeah, we're getting back into it. I mean, we talked about Metabolic Rift a while ago. Obviously, we've talked about our King Murray Bookchin. And um, now, Dan, do you want to tell us what we're talking about and kind of like the conceit behind the little bit of what we read in this book? Yes. So we read um, James W. Moore's, uh, Jason W. Moore's. Scratch <laughs> 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 that. Already I did that. God damn it. <laughs> Thank you, Jack. So we read Jason <laughs> W. Moore's Capitalism in the Web of Life. Mm. Um which yes, I was. I've been keen to have a look at for quite a long time. I heard an interview with him and was very enticed. And also, I felt like it clashed in a lot of ways with some of our um, uh, adopted key ideas, modes mm. of thought. I podcast suppose lore. <laughs> it conflicts with our podcast law. It does indeed. Um, and in the interests of like uh, expanding our scope and testing our ideas and that kind of thing. I mm. thought it would be a good place to start. Um, I think I speak for us both when I say, boy, were we tested by this. Yes. Tested. We read three <laughs> chapters. Well, we read three essays and an introduction, and the introduction was like an essay in and of itself. So, you know, we tested ourselves, not too much. Uh, yeah. It's an, it's, this is an exciting book because um, it definitely goes after a huge, or goes at the jugular, perhaps, Yes. Um, of a lot of common sense thinking around the intersection of ecology and socialism um the relationships between uh humanity and society and nature mm. it definitely conflicts in some fundamental ways i think with uh murray butchin's thought um he definitely has it in for john bellamy foster in some aspects of this book he so does. it also clashes a little bit with metabolic rift um and also it clashes a lot with sort of this, he's very much, we're going to get into this in later episodes, I think, although we might touch on it a little bit today. Um, he also sides with Wallerstein to some extent in the origins of capitalism debates 
as they exist between world systems theory and the Brennerites. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so it's it, it's interesting to explore those ideas once again. Um, but yes, he is presenting a way of looking at the relationship and the intersection of society and capitalism. Sometimes, sometimes he's talking about society at large. Sometimes he's talking more specifically about the capitalist mode of production and how those two intersect with nature and what the nature of the relationship is. Um, and he uses that ever tantalizing piece of terminology that um, we usually just treat as a bit of a meme on this podcast, but actually ought to learn to take a bit more seriously, which is the dialectic. The dialectic. Yes. Um, so he's trying to present a dialectical reading or a dialectical interpretation of relationship between um, nature and society, something mm. which he accuses most of a green thought as treating in a Cartesian manner, by which I mean, um, or by which he means presenting it as a dualism of two separate things which intersect um, or have a relationship between the two, but um, but are fundamentally considered to be two separate things rather than uh, two things in dialectical relationship. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny because a lot of this, and I just said this to you, literally right before we started recording. So you're going to have to pretend to be like, oh, wow, Jack, very interested. <laughs> but a lot of this is, I think, an exercise. Reading this was an exercise in like how academia and academic articles and thought um, adapt under capitalism because it's like very much he has to pick a side. He has to find people that he disagrees with and say, this is who I'm criticizing. I'm criticizing you. Um, and we'll get into kind of like what it is about Foster and like metabolic rift and all of this different stuff that he um, disagrees with. But I think a good place to start would be uh, this whole idea of the double internality. There are a lot of like, <laughs> whoa, dude. I mean, like this book is very like dialectical. Mm. So like there's a lot of like, whoa, dude. I think stuff he's very it. consciously trying to present a new language and new yeah. discursive oh, framework. Yeah, he's trying extent. to have like an analytical framework so that you can do like analysis better or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Like that's like the whole introducing a new vocabulary is like very important to him yeah. and like how we can understand this relationship. Yeah. And to be fair to him, like I think we both find it very difficult. Um <laughs> But he does actually want to be understood. I yeah, think. he repeats like, himself like a million there's a, times. There's a lot of like... repetition. And it's one of those things where it's repetition as a little bit of movement each time. Yeah. And the, uh, the idea and the, the discussion advances a little. And sometimes you can't recognize the advance because yeah. it feels very repetitive. Yeah, the me. people at Verso were like, pad it out a little yeah. bit. So <laughs> pad it out a little. But yeah, so there are a couple things. There's um, the oikios, which is very exciting. There's this idea of the double internality. And there's like... Um, the thing that I maybe had a little bit of trouble with, which I'll kind of probably save criticizing until we, you know, finish this book, but there's this idea of like, like abstract nature as like, which is supposed to work in tandem with like socially necessary labor time, like abstract labor, right? But we'll get to all of that. Um, do you want to talk us through a little bit this idea of like the double internality as it kind of relates to this kind of like dualist approach that he's like you know, goddamn dualism, like Cartesian fools, because like we have this idea of, that we've come across before of metabolic rift of one in which capitalism interacts with nature and it loses energy, basically. Like it, it takes energy from the natural world, it uh, alters it through labor, and then it like in the final product, it like either creates a ton of waste or it loses a bunch of energy uh, for its outputs. And he's kind of saying that, no, you can't think of it like that, this is very much an example of one of the books that we read where it's like, everyone's stupid but me. He has this like post-Cartesian worldview and it all kind of comes to a head in this idea of the double internality. Um, yeah. Yeah, so he's talking about... I'll do my best. Okay, good. <laughs> he's, um, he's talking, as I say, in terms of the relationship between nature and society. And he talks about a double internality to mean nature inside of society and society being internal to nature. Um, I think the best way to frame this perhaps is that his is a very, he puts sort of his, history. I mean, mm. he is a historian as well as sort of a geographer or a history, a geog <laughs> historical geographer, <laughs> I suppose. Um, if I'm getting that correct at all. Um, and so, he, but he has a fundamentally 
historical approach to these things. And he seems to, one of the fundamental criticism he makes of other people is that the sort of Cartesian framework, the dualist framework that he sees people uh, repeating um, in their theorizing excludes in some ways a historical understanding of the process or the development of the relationship between um, nature and society and nature and capitalism. Um, and he talks about them sort of co-producing one another, mm. um, not in the sense that they're sort of equal participants. Obviously, like, um, it's it's true to say that, like, capitalism is doing um, incredibly destructive things to nature. And also, nature has the capacity to um, sort of, like, to borrow a language that he would critique, exact a revenge against <laughs> society, I suppose. Um, so they're not both equal all of the time. Sometimes one or other is in the ascendancy. Um, but there is this permanent relationship between the two and they interact historically, I suppose. Mm. Um, temporally, temporally, even, I think. Yeah. Because like, one of the things that really blew my mind about this, I had to reread the introduction like three times before I came close to understanding it. Because a lot of it just seems like, whoa, yeah, dude, like, uh-huh, it is just one big thing, man. And then you're kind of like, well, what's the point of saying it like this? How can I actually, like, affect change? Where is agency? Like, what does any of this mean? He does clarify all of it. But it's really interesting because I don't know if you noticed, but throughout this, he's citing the book that we ostensibly read for our conversation with June Reith, General Intellect Unit, um, The Tree of Knowledge by Maturon and Vrela, which... Those were two thinkers that really heavily influenced um, second order cybernetics and specifically Stafford Beer. And it's because of this idea of like adding a temporal aspect for them to the definition of life as something that is constantly ongoing, that is dynamically adapting to like its environment, blah, 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 blah. And Stafford Beer obviously took that to create like the viable system model. And so he has one sentence in here where he actually directly quotes them. And just to say, like, we'll get more into this idea of the oikios, but this is the word that he uses, right, to, like, define this process of, like, interaction and life-making is what he calls it. So he says, if one begins with the oikios and the double internality, we may reconceptualize metabolism as a flow of power, capital, and material nature characterized by a, and then this is the quote, unbroken coincidence of our being, our doing, and our knowing. So it's really interesting to me because it's really, like, I don't know, it ties it all together. I suppose, like, Stafford Beer and Maturon and Varela probably wouldn't call themselves, like, dialectical thinkers, really. Maybe not just literally, but they definitely are. And, like, in adding this kind of temporal aspect, as you would say, like, historical aspect to understanding um, capitalism in nature and nature in capitalism, the double internality, you really get this, like, interesting approach to kind of trying to understand, I suppose, how you could affect change. Maybe it's just about, like, understanding, like, analytical eco-Marxism more and trying to create a framework for all of this stuff. But that kind of, like, connection I really found fascinating. And I think it kind of, at least for me, like, maybe validated um, the viable system model and, like, second-order cybernetics more, maybe, hopefully. And it definitely made me understand this more because I was like, oh, it's like the bong rip Chilean dudes. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> I had no idea actually that he was referencing Maturana and Varela. Mm. It does make sense. And there were multiple times when I was reading this when he was thinking of environment, perhaps, or um, I was thinking about the a, a, a biological human beings, I suppose, relationship to the environment and to nature. And I think there was a point in this when he does talk about there being like, he talks about the microbiome, right? And there being this sort mm -hmm. of like internal natural environment to human beings kind of thing. Um, and all of these references kind of made me think of the viable system model and how Stafford Beer depicts like a viable system's interaction with the environment kind of thing. Mm. Um, and they're sort of like, that that it does make sense that that sort of like is one way of understanding what he's saying with the uh, mutual or co-relationship between the two. Yeah, just that you can't understand the system itself without studying its environment that it's adapting to. Definitely. Yeah. Um, it's certainly worth saying that, like, when it comes to this dialectical understanding, he also very deliberately says that what he's not doing or not advocating doing is collapsing both aspects into one substance i suppose he doesn't want to he want doesn't he what he doesn't want to maintain these two elements total separateness such that they're just like um one dominating the other perhaps but he also doesn't want to sort of collapse the two into one and he very deliberately makes the point that like 
if you do do that, you almost lose history and agency entirely. Mm. If it's just... Uh, if it's just nature developing, if just human beings are part of nature and nature is part of human beings such that it's just one substance, one flow, one process, um, you kind of lose agency. Um, and he's very deliberately trying to place or maintain human political agency as something that can intervene in this process. And therefore, I think, because I, I sort of asked myself this question a few times, like, kind of... This is all very intellectually interesting. <laughs> How do I grapple with this in a substantive way such that yeah. it's actually applicable or mm. applicable? And I guess it just falls into the category of theory, which is designed to help us understand the world such that we're actually better able to change it. Um, and then one of the points of relevance of that is this kind of like, it's important to see it dialectically so that we can maintain and keep agency. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I suppose that like the reverse of that is if you do... well. Let me just speak to what you're saying, too. Like, if you do just collapse it all down into one substance, it's just nature going, man, and it's just capitalism. What is it that the Brennerists, the Brennerites would call, or just the, what it is called, the idea, like this kind of Smithian idea of, like, capitalism is just nature, man. It's just, it's always been there. What was, what yeah, was the phrase that we came across? Or, yeah, something uh, like that. But anyway, it's just like this idea that, like... You can really draw from that this idea that capitalism has always been there. It's always been there as long as there's been exchange, and it's just this natural thing. And the other end of that, I suppose, would be something like more bourgeois, like attempts at materialism, where they it's like Jared Diamond. It's just like the reason that the conquistadors were able to conquer like continents is because they lived with cows and the cows gave them, you know, immunity to the diseases and then they gave it to the native like peoples of Central and South America and then they all died or whatever, you know what I mean? And it's, he's basically trying to like, he does have this kind of dialectical approach where he's like, don't do dualism. So you think he's going to go too far towards the kind of like, it's all just one big thing, man. But in kind of creating this idea of the double internality, it's really interesting because it's like, it is it is very dialectical. I hate to say it because it is like these two ideas. You start with these two ideas, you know, capitalism or humanity in nature and then nature like acting through capitalism. And then you kind of work your way through it to understand, oh, this is basically just like one movement, but it is these two relatively distinct things happening at the same time. Yeah. I, I took to drawing little tiny bongs in the <laughs> margins of my book whenever I got to anything like that. It's like, oh, yeah, man. Wow, it is just one big thing, huh? It's dialectical. Wow, crazy. Um, so, yeah, I suppose maybe we should expand a bit just on the idea then of the oikios. And I think that, yeah, to go back to what you're saying, it's like, what is the value <laughs> of this beyond just like, huh, neat, that's an interesting way to think about it. Because it is a very interesting way to think about it. And I, I don't know, his Twitter handle is at oikios, which I think is very funny. And I was kind of like, why did you need to come up with a name for this? But he does explain it, why it's necessary to have a name for this process of life making. And that is like ripped basically from the tree of knowledge it's autopoiesis it like literally just is in a slightly different context right so he gives it this name of oikios and yeah i don't know when he was like oh me and my pals at berkeley used to talk about dialectics i was like okay <laughs> yeah, that's when you right. do the biggest bong <laughs> yeah, exactly i was like your dialectical pals at berkeley huh hippie <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I've got to be honest in saying that, like, I haven't worked out how to use this piece of terminology yet. Sure. Um, I, I, I sort of like, as I, as I understand it, what he's intending to do is employ, it, almost like um, introduce a positive piece of terminology um, that includes the creative as well as the destructive aspects of this relationship. So it's not like society just destroying nature. <laughs> Um, but rather this sort of like co-productive process. Mm. That's my only understanding of the well, oikos yeah. or oikos or whatever. Yeah, it is. and he, he takes, I don't know, he takes uh, the good from like both of these sides because he is able to be like, nature totally does like affect capitalism. He gives, or the development of societies. He gives a couple examples of like, you know, like gendered kind of like family relations evolving out of like maybe like the agrarian uh uh, societies on like, you know, the transatlantic agrarian societies or like, you know, the crops that they were able to grow in like the Southern United States as affecting the societies that they wound up creating with slavery, et cetera, et cetera. So there is definitely like one side of this where it is like, that is 
nature acting kind of through humanity, right? It is affecting the way in which we live, and you do have to acknowledge, okay, our environments do play a role, but it isn't just the Jared Diamond side of the role, right? It is also, like, it gives us some agency back, but also, like, yeah, I don't know, maybe not much, because it is, like, it's so abstracted and it's so zoomed out that it's, like, humanity acting through nature isn't, like, the butterfly effect of, like, you stepping on a bug and then, like, a forest goes up in flames or whatever. It is, like, capitalism acting through nature and capitalism um yeah ripping resources from the ground and changing its environment so it is like nature is changing capitalism capitalism is changing nature i feel like i could have just said that but you know what are you gonna do <laughs> the ideas i was listening to an interview with him today um in which he ventriloquized uh bellamy foster <laughs> by which i mean he he tried to try to suggest depict what Bellamy Foster's criticism of him is or okay. one of Bellamy Foster's criticisms of him is and what he was saying was Bellamy Foster sort of says that oh more he um almost denies the severity of the crisis you know he mm, interesting he um and you I can sort of sympathize with that mm, criticism and I too. was feeling that multiple times through this book this sense of like there is something that really when you're trying to motivate worry or mm. um, have, a, have a call to action on the basis of environmental degradation, it really does help to be like, oh, big, bad human beings, capitalism, society, <laughs> like um, destroying nature. And we need to sort of stop and step in and save nature. Um, and if you do start to take this dialect, de- this sort of dialectical approach that he's presenting, you do kind of begin to lose some of that um moralism or even a certain amount of humanism i wonder whether this is more of a mm. sort of like anti-humanist approach somehow yeah. um but he does seem to he, he does well for one he um he says that he doesn't deny the crisis obviously and mm. he recognizes that the processes at work that are the result of capitalism's relationship to nature as it exists at the moment is an incredibly destructive one which is going to cost the lives of like millions mm. of people in all likelihood um but he does also suggest that there is a certain tendency toward apocalyptic thinking that mm. sort of taken over green left thought um i don't know anyone like that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it did sort of make me wonder i had a certain sympathy for that uh, attitude i suppose um so I, I don't know whether you feel similarly sympathetic or whether you would you would agree that perhaps something negative is introduced if we become too apocalyptic in our thinking um, and took a step back and said, took that sort of anti-humanist approach that was like, it sounds really horrible to say, but like <laughs> sort of life on earth will go on, nature will go on. If we speak so apocalyptically as to say that human beings are going to like destroy the planet, make life impossible and untenable, which I guess is a possibility, right? But mm. in all likelihood, no, that's not going to happen. Mm. Um, do we then cloud our thinking, cloud our judgment that prevents a more analytic, more um, considered approach to understanding the 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 tendencies, the processes at work in this relationship between capitalism and society, capitalism and nature, rather. Um, do we cloud our possibilities for action somehow mm. by being too apocalyptic? Um, I don't know. Or do we slip into moralism somehow when we ought to be more steps back? Yeah. Um, well, I think you raise a, I think you raise a really, really important point, which is like, honestly, this distinction between like what is politically valuable and what might be... I'm not going to say more correct, but like more analytical. Um, because I, even having read these three essays, I still feel a lot of sympathy for Foster just because I think that the idea of metabolic rift is like so easy to understand and so easy to communicate. And like everyone would be like, yeah, you're right. Like there is a huge loss of energy in the way that we do things now. But if you tried to sit someone down and be like, but have you thought about like dialectics? Have you thought about an orbit? You know what I mean? It would like really confuse people. He, I'm, I'm going to read the paragraph where he talks specifically about this. And I put a big question mark next to part of it because I was kind of just like, I don't think I agree with this at all. Mm-hmm. He says, um, we are frequently warned of the alleged dangers of civilizational quote unquote collapse. But if the 
But is the collapse of capitalism, a civilization that plunges more than a third of its population into malnutrition, really something to be feared? Historical experience suggests not. The fall of Rome after the 5th century and the collapse of feudal power in Western Europe in the 14th century ushered in golden ages of living standards for the vast majority. And he cites for that, he cites Chris Wickham and Emmanuel Wallerstein. We should be wary of making too, uh, of too much of such parallels, but we shouldn't ignore them. Uh, I think regardless of whether or not that historical claim is true, because I think it's probably more valid... It's like, well, at least in academia now, it's probably more like in vogue to be like, okay, the collapse of Rome wasn't like this big, horrible, crazy thing. But I think that perhaps one of the reasons that it wasn't was because like there were niches for people to go to. Like when the collapse of the grain dole happened in urban Rome, people were able to just go out and get land and start farming on their own. Or they died, I guess. It's also a possibility if they weren't able to do that. If they're, yeah. But like, I think that perhaps he's looking a bit past the like truly universal totalizing like global nature of modern capitalism because like it isn't that my food comes from just down the road it isn't even that most of my food comes from this country you know what i mean like if these capital even if like one supply line were to collapse and we've seen a lot of this with covid right like the world kind of plunges into chaos and i don't think that there necessarily are niches like there were at the collapse of feudalism or the collapse of antiquity. What about space, Jeff? <laughs> what about, indeed, the asteroids? <laughs> Asteroid farming. Forget mining. Uh, like, I don't know. It seems like Russia invading Ukraine had catastrophic consequences for the grain supply to, like, North Africa. And if, like, that's all it takes, then, like, I don't know. I would wonder, I would question his claim that, like, like, I get what he's saying about, okay, already we don't feed a third of the world's population properly enough. But I do think that, like, a complete and sudden, I suppose, whether or not it would be sudden, collapse of these globalized, completely complicated, intermeshed supply chains, I think that would be, like, hugely catastrophic. I don't know. I don't think any nation is really equipped, let alone any, like, locality, to, like, really deal with having to suddenly relocalize agriculture production in any way, let alone, like, smaller localities than that. So I would question that. I don't know how you feel. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it like that, but it's um, it's definitely the case because he he clearly has this um, approach to history which it doesn't it doesn't obviously he'd never um, let one factor be the determining factor, mm. but he also makes very central sort of like climactic shifts to various developments in history, and obviously he talks about the collapse of Rome. I think he talks about like uh, drought in the the East leading to actually being the push factor that drove the sort of like barbarian hordes, quote unquote, in and the <laughs> sacking of Rome. Um, I've heard him say that he's, he, he stands with the barbarians against the Romans. <laughs> I respect that. Yeah, he's just like, I like him. <laughs> the, the barbarians destroyed one of the worst enslaving societies. I mean, like... <laughs> that is true. Like that, when we, when we read about the Latifundias and stuff, it's like, because I was thinking, I was like, okay, it still would suck to go work as like a borderline, like indentured servant on some schmucks, like, you know, proto-bougie dudes like plantation in goal who's paying tribute to like some barbarian frank or something like that but then i was like well i also wouldn't want to work on a lot of fundia and i feel like it actually would be better so mm -hmm. there probably is something to that yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> and he yeah, yeah yeah so yeah he he sort of speaks to the environmental aspects of that the sort of collapse of rome and he also talks about the um environmental aspects to the um uh downturn in the feudal economy that we sort of talked a bit mm. a little bit about um in the 12th century and also that led into the the sort of like the black death as the sort of natural intervention um and he talks in that instance of like um the peasant society that was constructed in western europe as being one that was in very uh uh sort of almost liberating for those peasants and sort of freed them from a lot of like class mm. oppression kind of thing um and he also talks about the sort of mini ice age that hit in the middle of the last millennium that um, drove uh, capitalists to find or all these sort of nascent capitalist class to find all these externalities in uh, Central America kind of thing. Um, it's worth mentioning that certain of these environmental interventions in society lead to actual changes in the mode of production and some of them don't, obviously. Mm. Um, but yeah, he's obviously he's talking very much about... Um, 
society and when he starts to talk about capitalism he fixates or focuses very heavily on capitalism's search for externalities in the form of what he called cheap calls cheap nature or mm. keep cheap natures um but i hadn't really thought about it in that context of like we now live in the but he would talk about it very specifically we now live in the conditions whereby there aren't really any externalities and if um society's escape or the the remnants of the survivors of the quote-unquote <laughs> apocalypse are to escape somehow into some new external space um that doesn't exist yeah um and he's he sort of talks almost favorably as you say in that quote he does seem to have this theory of capitalist crisis which is kind of an underconsumptionist one in some ways or seems to draw its inspiration in some ways from rosa luxemburg in that um there is this constant search by capitalists for external spaces to exploit, and when of those external uh, spaces run out, capitalism slips into crisis because the produ- the process of the production of value by the capitalist economy and the capitalist mode of production cannot survive without these mm. external inputs, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so he definitely recognizes a lack of external space and externalities and recognizes that as being fundamental, perhaps, to the potential undermining and collapse of capitalism. Um, I don't think he would be so determinist as to say, okay, and what comes after is going to be great, yeah. because obviously he still like wants to give humanity and society um, some agentive role in choosing or mm. failing to choose it's almost like if we didn't have agency it would be better yeah. God damn it. Uh, so i don't know where i'm going with this but um yes it's an interesting point that you make yeah well thank you <laughs> i think you're right i think to kind of shift the conversation to to his ideas of like cheap natures because that's exactly where he goes and i think he kind of saved that bit that i just read i think he kind of saved it with a couple sentences that directly came after it he says i've long thought that the most pessimistic view is the one that hopes for the survival of modernity in something like its present form. I think we were all like on board with that. That rocks. That's very, very cool. But this is impossible because capitalism's metabolism is inherently an open flow system that continually exhausts its sources of nourishment. There are limits to how much new work capitalism can squeeze out of new working classes, forests, aquifers, oil fields, coal seams, and everything else. Nature is finite. Capitalism is uh, premised on the infinite, also known as the infinite. So... Another contribution that he gives here is, as you say, this idea of the four cheaps, cheap nature. Um, And it's funny because he, whenever he's talking about like a kind of Cartesian, like dualism idea of nature, nature is this external thing. He capitalizes it. So it's like capital N. So cheap nature is very much like capitalized, right? So the four cheaps are labor power, duh. Like I think, yeah, we know that. But also food, energy, and raw materials. Like he basically is saying that capitalism requires these things to... um, continue to be able to accumulate value. And it's really interesting. I think this was the part that I was maybe the most excited about because he really draws here on like radical, specifically, I suppose, like Marxist feminist theory to create these ideas of, um, to kind of like bring us past a kind of like economic determinist view of value. Um, Kind of like the feminist theories that he's drawing from talk a lot about like free work that's done to maintain or to even like have social reproduction in a very literal sense continue. So when we talk about social reproduction and Marxism, we usually just think about like the necessary labor time that goes into a working day so that, you know, the worker can get paid enough to go home and have enough food and have like a house and water and clothes and all these things. But he's basically saying, and a lot of, you know, feminist thinkers before him have said this as well, well, we're ignoring a whole like huge amount of work that goes into reproducing society that is not paid and that is outside of that sphere and this is almost like overwhelmingly done by women it's done by like colonies things like that but to hear specifically to talk about the feminist angle it's like actually raising children to have a new generation of workers that is not paid right and he basically takes this one step further and says well this mirrors itself in our ecology and in nature uh you know lowercase n (laughs) to basically say that capitalism it requires this abundance of the four cheaps right and if it were to ever run out of those things hint hint that would be literally like and this is kind of macabre like he doesn't say this but it would kind of be like running out of like women to do that work to do like the actual social reproduction it would be just as catastrophic because then there is just no basis for the workers to do their work because when we talk about like 
value and creating value in social reproduction in a kind of economic determinist way, it kind of seems like we're just talking about things in a vacuum when that is almost certainly not the case. Like there's so much more that goes into having a job and doing work than just necessary labor time and surplus value. There's like all sorts of stuff outside of that and external to it, but that also work through each other and whoa, dude, dialectically, like it's all one thing. So I was really fascinated by that and I'm very excited by it. Hmm. Yeah, if there's, some, if, there, if there's a really positive contribution that comes out of particularly that second chapter on um, the law of value, um, it is this one which gets us out of a cul-de-sac, which is very easy to get stuck in, which is a fixation on um, labor, a fixation on the workplace, to the exclusion of the contributions to the, la- the, sort of the productive process, the capitalist process of the production of value that come from um these other kinds of non-remunerated or these forms of work that fall outside of the labor relationship, I suppose. Um, obviously, you talk about like uh, the social work, the work of social reproduction in all its various forms, which is gendered, although he says it doesn't necessarily need to be gendered. But mm. in this case, in our society, it is highly gendered. Um, and also, we just talk about labor, nature as in almost in the context of it being a worker in some way or yeah. like it being... It, being productive um he'll talk about like forests or the soil um in a very similar way um as uh, this sort of discussion of like uh social reproduction that's done by women now it's very it's worth saying that like if it feels like um certain aspects of certain things are being treated as part of nature if women are being treated as part of nature <laughs> if like um subjects in colonies that are potentially more heavily exploited or even enslaved uh, considered to be part of nature he's basically saying that this is what this is something that capitalism starts to do when it starts to um when it begins i suppose is to to draw these demarcations between society and uh nature which didn't really exist anymore it's one of his criticisms of the sort of like the the Cartesian logic, I suppose, is that it comes about at the dawn of capitalism because capitalism is, is so intent or it necessitates this demarcation between nature. We only start to talk about nature with a capital N when capitalism comes about because it's necessary to have this uh, demarcation, I suppose. Mm. Um but yeah, he, he I mean there's so much there's so much good stuff in the discussion of uh the labor process and the law of value. He says some interesting things about the distinction between feudalism and capitalism. He talks about feudalism being one where the uh, what what the mode of production was interested in was the um, increasing productivity of land, yeah. whereas capitalism is interested in the the productivity of labor. And he is definitely a Marxist, and that he t- he he acknowledges the existence of the law of value. He recognizes that capitalism um, seeks to expand value in a Marxist sense, and he puts labor and more specifically socially necessary labor time as being the thing which is constitutive of value. Um, So he he maintains that um, analysis and he says that, okay, this is what capitalism does. This is what capitalism is seeking to expand. But far more, almost far more important to the, the, as a sort of input to the ability to create expanding values by capitalism, the, the constitutive part of that process that's played by these aspects of social reproduction or the inputs from nature are almost uh, numerically larger in some ways. He seems to be implying that, um, what capitalism values is labor in a sort of Marxist, conventional Marxist understanding, but he's sort of adding these uh, these extra elements, which he thinks are almost bigger somehow, I think. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's really, really interesting. And it has such interesting implications for like understanding like value theory in general and like having a much more broader understanding of everything. At the very beginning, he has this kind of like funny make-believe back and forth between a like died-in-the-red Marxist 
and a like, I don't know, green, green guy, you know what I mean? And he basically says that, um, I'll read it real quick. He says, this is true for Marxists as well as Greens. Value is abstract labor, say the Marxists, and it is determined by socially necessary labor time, the, um, the average labor time embodied in the average commodity. So we all understand that. This is something we've talked about before. But then he says, but wait, says the green thinker. The average labor time is just one part of makes a commodity of what makes a commodity possible. The Marxist law of value forgets that nature, here with a capital N, contributes to the value of all products that humans use. And again, I think that's like a very clear point. But again, I think that his problem here is that that's where the green critique stops and that it doesn't go any further. And then he says, to which the Marxist, quite properly, says that the whole basis for Marxist political economy is the distinction between wealth and value. And so I think it is important to understand that value is like a very, very historically specific determinant of wealth. And it is, as you're saying, like when we go back to feudalism and we talk about how wealth is maybe derived much more from like land productivity and what you can get from the land and blah, 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 blah. Whereas now it is just labor. It goes to show you just how fucking stupid of a system it is that all we value in exchange value is this idea of just like the abstract labor and we just completely ignore everything else. Everything else is just, it's just meat for the machine. I don't know what machine that is. <laughs> it's fuel for the machine to just create more accumulated value. And it's, it really is absurd to think that. And it's really interesting to think that there is this huge... Um, uh, not coincidence. What's the word when a uh, 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 fuck? Uh, no, when things contradiction. <laughs> fuck. There we go. God damn it. There's a contradiction in capitalism that is that these cheap natures, capitalism needs to um, drive down the abstract labor time in all of these. It needs to drive down the value in, for all like inputs like this for the productive process. And that's such an absurd contradiction because it's like. They're cheapening their own commodities. There's another way in which they do this to basically make like to expand, you know, the ratio between relative uh, and, you know, like absolute surplus value or whatever. But it's just so interesting when you phrase it like this to be like, well, what about all of those other things? And it's something interesting, I think, that when we talk about post-capitalist forms of society that we really have to keep in mind that we can't just solve this like economic question. We have to talk about, well, what about all of these other inputs that go into things and kind of like maybe think of a way to like measure and solve those, but also think about it dialectically, of course, you know, it's all moving through each other, I suppose. I suppose one of the interesting things to do might be to link this to some of the things we've talked about in the past around Robert Brenner and Ellen Meeksins Wood and this process both of um, that historical understanding of both what capitalism is and where it came from and what this one means, because in some ways, perhaps from Brenner, you get this hard transition from um, uh, extra economic exploitation to a purely economic form of exploitation. You know, you go from a kind of you 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 go from you go you have a hard distinction between uh, feudalism and then the development into capitalism, where you have this pure fixation on the expansion of values and the growth in. Uh, socially necessary labor time. Um, whereas in this uh, schema, you don't have that hard distinction. You um, very much have, well, in the context of uh, the distinction between extra economic exploitation and economic exploitation, you don't have one disappear and the other one come into existence. You are, in this schema have ex economic exploitation in the form of the extraction of surplus values in the workplace actually being supplemented and being made possible by the continued existence of extra economic exploitation, um, both of uh, native populations in colonized countries that you get in the sort of like from the 16th century onwards. And also the, I guess what you could also characterize as extra economic exploitation of nature, the sort of like, um, to sort of extraction of, of nature as a cheap input kind of thing. Um, one of the interesting, one of the most interesting things about his contribution to the uh, the the discussion around the law of value and around Marxism is he is saying that the ex the creation of value and therefore the um, expansion of socially necessary labour time is only made possible by 
the existence of cheap natures external to capitalism kind of thing. And that, that sort of brings us into his kind of like crisis, the sort of like the basis of his crisis theory or his understanding of where capitalist crisis comes from, because obviously he's now suggesting that here we are in the 20th century where these historic four cheaps that you talked about are now beginning to disappear. Like we don't have access to cheap food anymore. Um, we are potentially running out of cheap energies um, the costs of the extraction of these things are becoming so great that they don't suffice as the necessary um, extra economic inputs that make the extra the economic exploitation of capitalism a possibility. Does yeah, that make sense? that's really yeah. interesting. I hadn't thought about it like that. Okay. I, I, and it's funny. It's almost like you don't even need a like Grossman esque like idea of accumulation crisis and the final accumulation crisis for an understanding of where a capitalist perhaps like meltdown could come from because it is just oh there's just going to run out of like these cheap inputs you know what i mean it's like very kind of simple to understand one of the examples he uses which is a particular bugbear of ours here on the show is agriculture and he says it's extremely easy to see how all of this kind of flouting flaunting of cheap natures um, of the four cheaps has led to like a huge increase in the production costs for say agriculture because we use the cheapest possible methods the most profitable methods to produce our food and that just leads to complete soil erosion right so okay now there's less and less nutrients in the soil there are just no microbes in the soil to break down these nutrients to get them basically so that plants can eat them up so you have to keep pumping artificial phosphorus artificial nitrates all of this stuff into the soil and over a while, that just completely degrades the soil, and we're left with where we are now, where there's a huge crisis in actual aridability of farmland. And it's also just, like, that uses so much energy. It's such an absurd process that, like, not only is it just ruining the planet, but it's also just becoming so much more expensive. And so, again, like, I don't know necessarily if you need to be, like, a big value theory nerd to see where things are going. I think that this is perhaps one of the most politically, like, energizing things that he says, is that it's just, like... It, we're just running out of inputs. We're running out of these cheap inputs. And um, yeah, I don't know how he isn't just like a doomer <laughs> after that, but I am, I guess. <laughs> this feels to me like a, an interesting synthesis of various different um, explanations for crisis under capitalism. It sort of feels like, as I was saying before, it has some elements of an under-consumptionist theory, at least in the sense that um, the argument... Of, well, the argument of underconsumption being that capitalism always needs to find new markets because it always produces more than it can sell internally, so it needs to find external markets. It has certain aspects of that in the sense that in this description, it's not external markets that we're looking for, but sort of external nature to mm. bring in. Um, so it has elements of that, but also it does seem to have elements of the... He, doesn't, he never talks about, or at least in these sections that we've read, he never talks about the tendential fall in the rate of profit. Mm. But the mechanism behind the tendential fall in the rate of profit is that um, change in the organic composition, the shift toward more technologies and less labor. Um, and he does very much speak to that process, I think, in that he is um, uh, talking about how that actual process of creating more value by um, changing the productive process, ch changing that relationship between more machinery and less labor, how that process is related to and made possible by these cheap inputs, if mm. that makes sense. I don't know. And so, chip inputs. <laughs> the input, input of chip. No. <laughs> um, so I don't know. But... Um, it seems it seems to me like an interesting synthesis of various different yeah. crisis uh, theories, um, but yeah, it's it's definitely one where the capitalist system, in some ways, is not a closed system, in the way that um, maybe in the, the depiction that you get from maybe reading Brenner say on the transition to capitalism, or maybe we reading. Um, uh, Somebody like uh, whoever you were just talking about, crisis theory. Oh, Grossman. Gro somebody yeah. like Grossman, right? Where the the crisis is internal rather than external. Where the, where it's external <laughs> sounds like dualism to me, Dan. <laughs> where the where the where the crisis is endogenous rather mm. than exogenous, kind of thing. Um, this seems to have the pairings of both, you know. It does. Which is which is why I suppose perhaps why it's dialectical. Yeah, something. wow. <laughs> there is there is there is an exogenous limit and an endogenous limit, mm. um, and they're both 
reached at the same time because they're in some ways the same limit. They are the limit of capitalism. Yeah, yeah part of I was waiting for him to talk about like the tangential fall of the rate of profit, but he almost doesn't need to. And I would I wonder, I mean, I'm not sure if there's a way to actually really know this for sure, but I would wonder which one would come first because it seems like people have been predicting the like final crisis of capitalism for quite some time. And may and like maybe that's just around the corner, but we can also very clearly see where the end of the line is when it comes to finite resources. It's like, all right, once we stop being able to like easily get fossil fuels. And like things like fracking are like so obviously they're horrible for the planet, but they also just like don't make any sense on any kind of economic level because the amount of money that you have to actually put into developing these technologies and to actually do fracking is like it's a huge waste of money. You don't wind up making profit over any of it. And so all of this stuff is propped up by subsidies and propped up by like, you know, states just making things profitable. So whatever. This this also gets into, and this is kind of just what we were talking about, but his idea or this idea of, you know, the, the phrase that's kind of become somewhat famous now behind every Manchester, there's a Mississippi. We always think about like, you know, when you read Capital and Marx is just talking about like Lancaster or whatever. It's like, we always just think about the site of, production's exploitation of the worker but obviously slaves were being to use this specific example obviously slaves were being well i almost said exploited but i suppose actually more so appropriated because this is a point where capitalism actually says oh no no slaves are actually just a part of nature we're just going to keep them like that but there is really this idea that like even now behind every like i don't know uh, a place Valley, there's a mine in the yeah DLC. exactly <laughs> literally exactly and like in textile manufacturing and things like that and behind every like you know beautiful delicious succulent sirloin steak there's like slash and burn in the amazon and there's like all of this horrible stuff and that's yeah again that's another hugely useful thing in politicking i guess yeah um there was one other thing that i think i wanted to get to and i would kind of like to go back to his critique of foster <clears throat> for a bit because it's funny because they do both kind of come to similar ends i think now like talking through it i do really appreciate this idea of the double internality and this dialectical approach um a little bit more than perhaps say foster's idea of metabolic rift but i still think that's very useful but it's interesting because he talks about at the beginning about how he thinks that <clears throat> a lot of marxist ecology is like neo-Malthusian in a sense, because it places this area of crisis, much like Malthus would, external to kind of like the system itself, as opposing to realizing that it's all just one big thing, dialectical man, like, whoa. And I thought that was a really interesting idea. It's kind of like a slightly different phrasing of Malthusianism into one that, again, is this idea of like, there's us and then there's everything else. But I really found that interesting and kind of like, not like a damning critique of Foster, because again, they kind of come to the same conclusion. It's like everybody, know, okay, like there is a crisis. Okay, boom, we get it. Why did I read this book? But like, I thought that that was very interesting. Malthusianism, it is still around us, I suppose. Um, yeah. Yeah, I like the idea that, um, well, I almost feel like I'm about to repeat myself, but like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but this idea that like, one of the central elements of this dialectic is that the exterior and the interior kind of exist, but they're also kind of the same thing, mm. right? Like um, the the cheap nature that we are running out of is also something that capitalism was well, an external that capitalism exploits, but it's also something which capitalism was part and parcel in creating, which is, I suppose, the sort of like oikos um, element to this process, right? Like there were these cheap resources out there in the world but the capitalists had to build the infrastructure to extract them, have the ideas of how to slave, enslave the populations of the countries that sort of held these resources under the, under the ground, say. It had to create this distinct, distinction between nature and society or quote-unquote civilization and, and the rest of the world kind of thing. Um, and also had to sort of like create the economic processes that would actually be able to exploit these cheap natures in a way which was um, coherent with um, a mode of production, I suppose. Um, so it does kind of like, it sort of implicates capitalism in the continued existence and evolution of the external 
I suppose, small end natural world, yeah. I guess. The web of life. The web of life, indeed. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because a lot of this is kind of like just like a big brain. I'm going to sit down and write a whole book about it. Uh, not adaptation at all, but like it's very similar to like the bookchin that we've read where he's kind of like, no, 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 no. You can't think of it. Don't be an environmentalist. Environmentalists suck because bookchin doesn't say this. But to use Moore's language, that is kind of creating this external reality to ourselves. Bookchin doesn't necessarily have the, like, dialectical worldview that Moore does, but he does do a really good job of placing us within a system that we are part of. And I think Moore is definitely much more nuanced and definitely, like, understands, okay, but, like, we are humans and we do kind of want to, like, do our thing, man, so how are we going to do that? But I was really interested in that connection. I mean, yeah. Bookchin, a poor man's mourn. It's funny because Bookchin <laughs> is a is a dialectical thinker, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but I was thinking about Bookchin as we were reading this and how Bookchin would read this or how Moore perhaps reads Bookchin if he ever has, which I presume he has. Um, because what we gathered from Bookchin was this idea that there was, I think there were multiple element examples of a kind of like dualist thinking in Bookchin. There is the kind of like, the the idea that there was an original sort of like um, oneness between society and nature and some way society has taken this independent path from mm. nature and the idea or the arc of history is for the two to come back together again. Um, if that's correct, if that is the correct reading of Bookchin, that would definitely clash with Moore in the sense that Moore wants to see history as this constant interrelation between um, society and nature, such that they're, that they're independent things, but constantly co-producing in the in the manner of the oikos. oikos I guess. <laughs> I'm just going to keep saying it until oikos. I have some way to, <laughs> some rational use for it. Um, but yeah, and it's and also I feel like Bookchin if we recall, has this idea of the sort of like creative, ingenious nature separate from humanity in some ways. Like we need to have nature be um, as diverse, um, as free to create, to evolve um, independently almost to to present humanity with the perfect environment to exist in kind of thing or the most stable environment to exist in in some ways it pairs well with this in the sense that for bookchin nature does a kind of work it does there is a creative process and um humanity and nature ought to be entwined in this co-creative mm. uh process of creating life creating the web of life so i don't know in that instance whether bookchin is a is a dualist or not. <laughs> Someone I'll have to ask him, I guess. Indeed. Well, I think that, like, I don't know. I don't want to sound, like, too, like, whoa. But, like, <laughs> this is going to sound insane. If the future does not look like the cover of a Murray Bookchin book, <laughs> then, like, there, I don't know. There is going to be <laughs> some problems. What I mean by that is, like, I feel like a lot of communists could read this and go, okay, we just need to kind of, like, relocalize all of our production but continue to have a lot of the same productive practices. And I don't mean that in the sense of, like, labor relations. I mean that in the sense of, like, exploitative, uh, or I should say appropriation of nature. Um, and we really can't do that. Okay, I've been reading too much about Korean natural farming recently, but, like, we really do need to go beyond just, like, that step of just bringing everything closer together, man, and, like, actually reestablish our place in the web of life. Because, like, there are a lot of arguments, as you, like, jokingly said, that, like, you know, about, well, what about space? There's still a frontier in space. There are, like, a lot of people who, like, kind of semi-think like that. Most of them are pretty bourgeois, like, surprise, surprise. But, like, you can't just kind of do whatever you want. And, like, this book is a study in you know, like the limits of our environment that we live in. And obviously like the ways in which we co-produce that make this like dialectical unity. But like the reason you can't go to space and, you know, mine asteroids or whatever is because there aren't enough resources on the planet well, to do that. Space right? isn't a cheap nature. <laughs> yeah, it's like, that's and it, true. It, and it, you say it's like a depiction <laughs> of the limits of nature, I suppose. But it's also the book is a depiction of the limits of capitalism because yeah. the capitalists are obsessed with finding new externalities, finding new natures, potentially cheap natures to exploit. But as you were saying before, like... Um, you can't easily pump the oil anymore. So you've got to do 
tar sands you know yeah. or like we can't there there aren't new uh, natural gas resources so we've got to do something really intensive like fracking you know or mm. um i don't know how nuclear energy fits into this picture but nuclear energy is an incredibly in, it requires an incredible investment in energy to then start to get it back kind of thing mm. or heaven forbid like nuclear fusion where you put more energy and then you get out at the moment <laughs> and space is but another cool. example of like a not cheap nature like the amount of work the amount of billions trillions <laughs> that will have to be spent on creating new technologies and even like sending them up there to do this kind of thing mm. um to mine and anyway there's, no, there's, cool. there's also no potatoes in space so there are <laughs> not yet <laughs> not yet, not yet. so <laughs> so um We'll have to. There's no cheap. There's no solution to the cheap food crisis in yeah. space. You know. Yeah, um, I suppose. And there are no populations to enslave in space, as far as we know. So. Exactly. I think also though the reason I brought up like Korean natural farming or whatever, as viable or as unviable as stuff like that may be, like I don't think that people should fall into the trap of being like, well, okay, but we got to do a little bit of capitalist style production on our food, and we have to have a little bit of soil erosion, or we have to have a little bit of deforestation because like. That is pretty radically not true. And like this goes hand in hand with, I hate to say it, but like perhaps like toning it down a bit with our consumption and toning things down so that we can actually have a like non-appropriation, non-exploitative relationship with nature. And all I want to say is that that is like eminently possible. Like we do not have to do any of these things that we're doing right now. We do not have to like erode two thirds of the soil on the planet to make a bunch of carrots that nobody's ever going to eat. Um, and abolishing the abolishment of town and country looks very much like the cover of a Murray Buckton book. I'm just going to say it. I hate to say it, but that's what it's going to look like. Pigs in the streets. I think one of the, one of the um, central criticisms of the sort of dualist framework for the environmentalist mindset, I suppose, one of the, one of the things that he is criticizing is the idea that you could tweak society's mm. relationship to nature and maintain things relatively the same. Whereas what he is doing is like, no, it's essential to the continued um, expansion and therefore the success and the continued existence of capitalism to have these cheap natures to exploit. Like capitalism is an exploitative mode of production. It exploits labor, but it also exploits, it exploits labor in the workplace, mm. but it also supports, it exploits the labor of nature, whether that's things which it has created as nature, i.e., um, colonized populations and women and what have you or forests and and soil and oceans mm. and the rest so um the only way to overcome the the threat of apocalypse <laughs> that is threatened us by that 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 hangs over us as a result of what's going on with our natural environment the only way to overcome that is to overcome capitalism i think mm. that's the takeaway from yeah, at least the first quarter of this book that we've read. Yeah, absolutely. And I am looking forward. The, I think that uh, more into this book, he talks about uh, history quite a bit. Yeah. And so I'm interested in kind of understanding that. Um, I'd also be interested in understanding kind of what he thinks, like his more political thought about like transitions and about things like that. Because I was like, whoa, taken aback when he was like, but a capitalist collapse might just be good and it's like yeah okay you make a good point that like things are bad for like most people now but also like they could get worse <laughs> you know what i mean so i'm interested to see that um we plan on finishing this book dan we do i think we should yeah um i think this is, is a funny episode in the sense that it like stands to be revised as we read yeah. the rest of the book and work out whether we understand it it's classic although i think there's something positive for the two of us in reading a bit of the book talking about it mm. and then going back and reading some more of it and working out how we feel about what we've yeah. said about it i was it. entirely incorrect yeah. i mean i think the like 30 page introduction was like a good like here's what i'm going to talk about yeah. i also find it very funny that he didn't really define oikios in that introduction so i was yeah. just like what is i was this? almost thinking about <laughs> recommending skipping the introduction yeah. yeah you cracked me up when you were like his introduction has a conclusion <laughs> Yeah, nobody should do that. Nobody should do that at all. Um, okay, well, ecology. It is very interesting and I think extremely important. And I think that, like, I don't want to, like, you know, Jack goddamn hippy-dippy talking about his KNF and all of this stuff. But, like, ecology is extremely important if for no other reason than to understand the, like, appropriation that takes place that is uh, looming catastrophe, uh, perhaps close, perhaps far away, in some kind of distance. Um and I think that, yeah, all, all communists need to take it seriously. It isn't just a, like, you know, Murray Bookchin dude, ha, ha, whoa. But, like, this stuff is very important. Even if this book is a bit dense, it's very good. So 
Yeah. Oh. I'm, yeah, I'm glad we've embarked on this. Um, and I look forward to um, approaching all of these various ecological arguments that are championed by all of these excellent mm. Marxist scholars. And taking as a we side. Go forward. And take it hard, take it aside. <laughs> the good thing that neither of us are academics, Dan, is that we don't have to. Yeah. We can kind of go, this was cool. That was the most recent thing I read. That was very cool. I mean, eventually, <laughs> like in 50 episodes, when we read Fossil Capital, we'll be like, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah okay, that's good. I hope that we can just like continue to synthesize all of the things that we read yeah just we're putting information and knowledge in the chest for humanity one day it's <laughs> going to be full and we're going to get to that point of singularity yeah jason moore strikes me as one of those interesting characters who um wants to engage in comradely debate and open discussion and, and an effort to sort of synthesize his ideas with other people yeah. and then seems to have a complaint that nobody else wants to do that with <laughs> yeah. him. He's very nice. I will say a lot of yeah. people are just like, like Ellen Meekson's Wood was pretty brutal. She's just like, this guy's an idiot. He's wrong. I love you, Perry Anderson or whatever, but you're wrong. This, he's like, Foster, he, oh, he does such a good job and he's such a great friend. He's so good. <laughs> yeah, everything's However, a seminal text. Everything's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. In his classic work, yeah, yeah. which made no With, like, sense at all. <laughs> but it's funny because, like, there's this claim that, like, okay, we agree on, like, 90% of yeah. things. And then the other 10% seems to be, like, guns at dawn. Yeah. Well, so. the other 10% is, like, what you're basing your entire argument yeah, yeah, on. Yeah. So it's like, okay, all right, whatever. Um, but, yes, highly recommend at least the first third of this book. I don't know how many more episodes we're going to do it in. Probably two, I'd imagine because I don't want to read 200 pages in one sitting. Regardless, there will be other stuff, uh, I'm sure, in between and whatever. So get this book, uh, read it along with us, so you can tell us how wrong we are. Um, and yeah, ecology. I mean, this might just become a show where all we talk about is ecology from yeah. now on, so I don't know. We'll see. When are you going to do? And we'll get back to the origins of capitalism at some point. Yeah. <laughs> in this book, perhaps. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> this book synthesizes all of our interests. <laughs> It does. In a perfect dialectical fashion. In a dialectical fashion. And that's one thing that I do really like about this is he has millions of footnotes and that it isn't just a dude sitting back being like, ah, but mm. like dialectics. It's like he's done his research, he's done his reading, and he's making it art. What's infuriating about this book is it has so many footnotes and I need to follow yeah. them all up. Yeah, I know. There was an, there's an excellent essay that I found today on the question of whether animals are workers. I know, yeah. So looking forward to having a look at that. Yeah, I all right. Um, well, we'll be back again in, in a couple weeks. And um, yeah, thank you, Dan. This was very fun. Yeah, thank you, Jack. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next time with something excellent. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs>Music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion. Till next time. Whoa.